Good morning. So one of the traditions, like Kai said, that the church observes, um, our church in particular is one of those that observes is, is Advent. Um, it's this four-week period um, where we uh, look at the coming, the anticipation of the coming Messiah, the birth of Jesus. And so for four weeks, um, the church traditionally observes these different themes um, of hope, um, hope, joy, peace, and love. And, and each week we're going to have a reading that represents one of those and, and we'll light a candle. And so the candle gives us this visual representation of as, as we, each week as we light more and more candles, there's a growing amount of light coming to the room, right? And so it's this visual picture um, of us being able to see light coming into darkness. Uh, and each week more and more light um, until the birth of Messiah. So each candle represents one of the themes and then the center candle um, is the Christ candle that will light on uh, Christmas Eve. So we're in, in doing our Advent series, um, like I talked about, we've, we've been going through these different Old Testament stories, the greatest stories ever told, um, and, and looking at, um, at, at how these portray um, a part of the bigger story, the greater story um, of God's redemption uh, plan for his people. Um, and one of the things that I was reminded of when I was preparing for this <clears throat> made me think of this, this Bible that, or this, this book. Um, it's not a Bible word for word. Um, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible um, by Sally Lloyd-Jones. If you guys don't have it, how many of you guys have this at home? It's an awesome resource. Um, if you have kids, if you're an adult, um, it's got a great, it portrays um, these, these gospel pictures of how Jesus is the true and better fill-in-the-blank of all these different stories within Scripture. Um, but the intro of this, um, I, I love. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to put it on the screen. I'll read it. But it talks about how um, th- this, there's this growing culmination of, of God's greater story um, coming to an apex with the birth uh, of Jesus, of the Messiah. It says, No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a, gr- a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle, a piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture, such a cool picture of of. Um, how God's greater story culminates at the point of the birth of the Messiah. So for this week one of, of Advent, we're going to be looking at this, this time period. We kind of came up with the title of 400 Years Without a Story, um, where we have the, the, the prophets. Uh, there's not a prophet um, for the people uh, for 400, over 400 years of, of um, what some, some would describe as silence um, from God, 400 years before the birth of, of, of Jesus um, where there were no stories. And on the surface, it seems as though God was quiet and not doing much. Um, but as, as we see through um, multiple um, stories before this, 
when God's quiet, he's still active and still moving, still doing things. He's sovereignly over, over all things and in control. So in order for us to, to gain some understanding in this time period where it seems like God was quiet, we, we have the benefit of being able to see the scriptures in its entirety. And so we can go back to these other stories and see where it seems like God was quiet, but God was actually at work and preparing to reveal himself uh, in a huge, huge way. So one of the stories that, that, that I'm reminded of where God did this um, begins in, in the book of Genesis, um, where God makes a promise um, to Abram. And so as we look at these stories, there's three different things that we can see about the character of God. One of those is that God keeps his promises. God's a God who keeps his promises. He's faithful to his word. He's true. And in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God makes this covenant with Abram that, that he will be his God um, and they will be his people. And he has this special relationship with um, Abraham's, offspring, Abraham's offspring. And we see all throughout the Old Testament where God keeps this promise. He does all these different things to keep this promise that this is his people um, and they're to be his God. God later promises um, through these prophets to send a Messiah that would be born of the line of David, also from the same lineage of Abraham, um, to be a savior for his people. And the story continues throughout Genesis. Um, we see Jacob and, and his, um, his sons uh, led providentially by God to Egypt. Um, and God preserves them in, in Egypt um, in his providence. And while they're in Egypt, um, the Egyptians become threatened and feel threatened by the, the growth of God's people. They continue to multiply and have more and more kids and they grow in number. And the Egyptians are paranoid about that. And they're like, man, we, we need to do something about this so that they don't, um, join up with our enemies and overtake us. And so they decide, well, let's make them slaves. Let's make them live underneath us and work for us and toil and struggle and live this terrible life um, as, as slaves. And so they do just that. They make them slaves. They make, they make them um, live bitter, difficult lives full of physical labor, backbreaking labor. Um, they still continue to grow in number. And so they, the Pharaoh puts forth a decree that all the baby boys... Um, if, if a baby is born and it's a boy, it should be murdered, should be thrown into the Nile. Um, and, and, and so God's people, for 400 years, are living under this oppression and slavery, backbreaking labor, um, made to live in a land that's not their own, um, living under this oppressive power, um, and, and living in a, in, a, in a nation where their boys are being, are being slaughtered as well. And we look at Exodus chapter 2. Look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Those are some awesome verbs there, that God saw 
and God knew. If you look ahead just a little bit, as, as God's speaking to Moses in the burning bush in verse 7 in chapter 3, he says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so the second thing about the character of God, we see that God, God's a God who keeps his promises, and God is also a God who sees and knows. Um, he's not distant from what his people are going through. So we see that God sees and he knows. What did God know? God knew that his people were being oppressed as slaves. Um, he knew his people's suffering. He was aware of what was happening to them. He knew the dehumanizing control that the Egyptians had over the Israelites. He knew the horror and the, the, and the tra tragedy and trauma of the murder of Jewish babies. He knew that his people felt hopeless and weary. God knew all of this. And God, and God had a plan. God always has a plan. That's another element of God's character that we see in these stories. God keeps his promises. God sees and he knows. And God always has a plan. If you flip back to Genesis chapter 15, we see where God has a plan for the Israelites in what they're experiencing in those 400 years. Genesis 15, verse 13 and 14. <laughs> Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And so we see here where God um, keeps his promises. God sees and he knows what his people are going through, and God has a plan. This didn't shock him. This didn't take him off guard that his people um, were under the, oppress the oppressive rule of the Egyptians. Um, God had a plan. God's plan was to display his glory, his power, and his goodness in the deliverance of his people out of that oppression in Egypt. God knew the bondage that they were in as, as slaves to the Egyptians. So ultimately, God will deliver his people from that oppression by the blood of the Passover lamb. But for the 430 years that they're in slavery, it, it looked pretty grim for them. And it seemed like God was pretty quiet about it. But we see that God has a plan, and he executed that plan in his perfect timing. So if we fast forward to this, this time period that we're, we're calling where there's no stories, um, this period of silence where there's no, there's no new prophetic word from God to the people, um, it's about 400 years um, in, in from, from um, the prophet Malachi until we have the Gospels, um, there's, there's about 400 years of no new revelation, no new prophets, um, no new prophets being raised up to call the people to repentance. This 400 years, to put it in perspective for you, it's about anywhere between 16 to 18 generations um, of, of no new revelation from God where it seems like God is, is quiet they had just come out of exile before this. They were in, in Babylon um, in exile, and they were allowed to return back to Jerusalem um, to rebuild the city and the temple, but it just wasn't the same. They're coming back, and they're still not completely liberated. They're not completely free of other political rule over them, um, and, and the, the, they're struggling to, to, to reestablish what it was like before. 
At this time, also in, in this 400 years, Rome also conquers that territory and changes the culture um, and establishes different government um, than previous conquering kingdoms. So you see a lot of different things come into play in that 400 years that are pretty, um, pretty crucial to the, to the time frame of when Jesus is alive and doing his ministry and the crucifixion and things, things that are in play that God had to set up before the Messiah would, would come and be born. When we look at, at our English Bibles, the Bible that you have in your lap, um, the last Old Testament book that we have is, is Malachi. Flip real quick over to Malachi chapter 4. We're going to look back and forth at a couple different things, compare this. So Malachi um, chapter 4. Malachi 4, verse, let's look at the very end, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there's a couple different opinions on as to why this, in, in the canonization of scripture, as to why Malachi is the last Old Testament book in, in our Bibles. Um, some believe that it's because here at the end, when it mentions Elijah, um, later on in our New Testament, pretty early on when it mentions John the Baptist, um, John the Baptist, um, some believe, is, is the metaphorical Elijah here that, that is preaching this ministry or this message of reconciliation um, and, and this message of repentance, of turn and repent and follow Jesus and be reconciled to God. Um, and so, so some believe that that's why um, the order of our scriptures are that way, um, with the Old Testament ending there with Malachi, then leading into the Gospels. The Hebrew Old Testament, though, um, ends with the Chronicles. So flip back a couple more chapters in your Bible in the Old Testament to Second Chronicles. We'll look at the end of Second Chronicles here in a second. So the Hebrew Old Testament ends with um, the scroll of the Chronicles. Our, our Bible is split into two different ones because it's a really long scroll. Um, it's believed to be at the end of the Hebrew Bible because it summarizes a lot of the history of the Jews. Um, it starts with this, these genealogies, um, speaks of Adam, and at the end of it, it mentions um, King Cyrus, the king of Persia, that we talked about when we were back in, in Esther a couple weeks ago. Um, Cyrus was the one who freed uh, God's people, sent them, he liberated, allowed them to go back to Jerusalem at the end of uh, the 70-year um, captivity um, that they had in exile in, Bab in Babylon. He's a Persian king. Um, and so Chronicles is, is interesting because there's, there's a, if you read Chronicles, there's a lot of overlap in the stories between kings and Samuel. Um, and we see a lot of the same things in Chronicles, but it's, it's interesting how the writer writes these things and leaves out some stuff. Um, and, and even includes some stuff that's not in First and Second Kings and, and First and Second Samuel. But really, a lot of what the, the author of the Chronicles is doing is, is telling these great stories um, of King David. He leaves out a lot of a lot of stuff about King David's sin and his um, his shortcomings, um, not to hide those things about who David was, um, but to really elevate and show how great of a king. King David was and what they should look for in the messianic king that was, that was, um, that was prophesied to come and be their, uh, their, their Messiah. 
and give them something to look to and to hope for. Um, one of the other things that uh, the author of Chronicles um, does is it, they, they make a big deal, too, about the, uh, the, the, the temple being reestablished. Um, the temple was really significant because the temple signified where the presence of God was. And so the people thought, we've got to get the temple built back to what it was because that's where the presence of God is, and God will be with us again. And so there's a lot of um, talk of, of even how God gave David specific instructions with the temple and, and basically pointing this, this, painting this picture of how this Messianic king would come and liberate God's people from these oppressive governments that they're under, um, give them back their land um, where it's only theirs, and, and establish God's kingdom there, but also reestablish the temple. And, and so a lot of that's spoken of uh, throughout Chronicles. It's interesting how Chronicles ends when you look at some of these other writings that were going on around that time. Um, look, look at Second Chronicles uh, chapter 36 at the very end. Look at verse 23. It's going to end with kind of an incomplete sentence, and we'll, we'll tie this up here in a second. Look at verse 23. Thus says King Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And it stops. And it's kind of this incomplete thought. Um, but if you look over at Ezra, so look over at the next page over, look at verse 3 kind of finishes it for us, and we'll look back at why, the, why we believe the, the author of Chronicles left it out. Look, Ezra, Ezra chapter 1, verse 3, whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So the author of Chronicles leaves this open-ended because he believes that that the prophecy has not been fulfilled yet, that God's people have not been truly brought all the way out of exile, that they still need a, a, a Messiah to come and deliver them from um, this continued spiritual exile. And so it's believed that's why he leaves, he leaves that up. But one of the interesting things with how the writer of Chronicles, so remember this is their, their last, um, the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament, um, it leaves the reader with this anticipation and hope of this Messiah to come. It paints this picture of who King David was and how great David was and that, that there's this desire to have um, the temple rebuilt and God's presence reestablished amongst his people um, and paints this picture um, that, that it hasn't happened yet, that there's anticipation but there's hope. So the, the, the writer of Chronicles is calling God's people to look back at what God has done through all these things, through King David, through these other faithful kings, to look back at what God has done in order to look forward with hope. And for us as a church, as a, as a modern day church, Advent for us is that. We, we look back at what God has done and we see how God is a God who keeps his promises. We see how, how God is a God who sees and knows and, and we, we see how he has a plan and we look back at that and when we remember that, we see that, it gives us hope and it, it projects us forward um, with faith to continue. 
So let, let's look practically at this. So those, those three things. The first one, we look back at the promises that God has kept. So we kind of list a couple promises um, of, of God that are in Scripture. That for us as the church now, even in this Advent series, that we can look back at the promises of God, take hold of those, and be reminded of um, the fact that he keeps his promises. Are you weak? Maybe you're in a season where you feel weak. God promises to give you strength. At the end of the Exodus, in Exodus 15, Moses, uh, they, they cross the Red Sea, and Moses, uh, he erupts with song. Um, and, and this is it's called the Song of Moses. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. So God promises to give us strength, to be our strength when we're weak. Are you in a season where you're tired and weary? In Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you in a season where you're doubting God's provision for you? Are you, are you anxious? Are you in a season where you're doubting God's provision for you? Are, you? are you anxious? In Matthew, Jesus tells us not to be anxious about what we'll eat or drink or wear. Jesus says, I take care of the birds. I take care of the lilies. How much more valuable are you than they? Of course, Jesus will provide for you. Paul in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, he speaks of God providing for our every need according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. So God's provision is a promise for his people. God also promises to set us free from being slaves to sin. God promises to set us free from being slaves to sin. Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 17 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, have been, have, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. So God promises to set us free from being slaves to sin. God also promises that nothing can separate us from him. We look at Romans 8. For I'm sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God promises that nothing can separate us from him. God also promises us eternal life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. These are the promises, the promises of God. They're true. There are over 3,000 promises in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 1, it says, For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which also means yes, ascends to God for his glory. So all the promises of God are fulfilled as a yes in Jesus. The second thing is we, in the season, we look back and we understand that God sees and knows. God sees and knows your pain. God sees and knows your loss. He sees and knows your struggles. In Psalm 34, 18, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted 
and saves the crushed in spirit. God also sees and knows that our greatest need is a savior in Jesus. So it helps us when we look back and we see and understand that God sees and knows our situations and where we are. The last thing is we look back and we see God's plan. We look back and we see God's plan of redemption at work throughout all the Old Testament and it reminds us that he's in control through all of it, that nothing surprises him or takes him off guard. The cool thing about as, as you look at these, these desires of the Israelites within the writer of, of Chronicles, of this, this messianic king that would come, is that we see that Jesus um, fulfills these hopes and these prophecies from the writer of Chronicles. Um, but Jesus didn't fulfill them in the ways that were expected. Jesus defied expectations with, with how he fulfilled these as the messianic king. God's plan was for Jesus to come in low as, as a frail, dependent baby, not as, not as a mighty, triumphant warrior king. Um, he came in low and humble, um, dependent as, as a frail baby. Jesus established what we call an upside-down kingdom, um, where, where the first are last and the last are first, um, where, where the prideful are brought low and the humble are exalted and raised up. Jesus' kingdom was different. Jesus came as a king, but in a totally different way than what was expected of him. Jesus also came and reestablished God's presence amongst his people. Jesus established God's presence amongst his people as God in flesh. And so the presence of God um, was in Jesus, um, God in the flesh. He was a walking temple. It was God's plan to later send the Holy Spirit um, to the church to live within the people of God. That's why Paul refers to your bodies as a temple um, of, of the Lord. And so he reestablished God's presence within um, his people. Jesus also established a different kind of people than they thought his kingdom would contain. Um, all these people within this, this time period before the Messiah would be born thought that, that the Messianic king that was coming would would establish a kingdom with, with the religious elite, with the, the, the super Jews, the people that, that were, were really, really devoted to um, Jewish customs and traditions. And Jesus comes and he shows that, that he's establishing a different kind of people, um, a new people of God, his bride, the church, a group of people comprised of sinners um, and broken people like, like you and me. And John 1 12 and 13, it says, but, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so Jesus ushered in a new kind of people, the church. For us, when, when we look at Advent, when we observe and we focus on the first coming of Jesus, it, it, it enlightens us and reminds us of the faithfulness of God and pushes us forward to remember that God's a God who keeps his promises and that God has promised that Jesus would one day return again for his church, for the bride. And so I challenge you guys as, as we continue through this Advent season to do that. Um, one of the things that I think is such a gift to God's people is, and I, you may think I'm kind of biased, but I think music is, is a gift to, uh, to God's people uh, it, it communicates 
um, this deep combination of truth and emotion. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a vehicle that, that communicates that to us in a way that nothing else does. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to play a song um, from, uh, it's not a typical Christmas album, um, but it's one of my favorite Christmas albums. Um, if you've been around Crosspoint for any length of time, you know that we love uh, Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb um, record. And uh, it, it's just, I mean, same thing as the storybook Bible, that it, it paints this story of God's redemption um, from beginning until the birth of, of Christ and uh, God's plan for redemption for his people. Um, one of the things, I want to explain some of the things within this song that you can take notice of in, in the same way that a chef would explain to you what you're about to eat if you're eating something that's like an exquisite cuisine. Um, I want to explain just a couple details to observe within this song um, so you can take it for what it was intended to be. Um, this song is called Deliver Us, and it's, it's painting this imagery um, of God delivering his people um, out of Egypt, out of slavery, um, but also the need for us to be delivered from slavery, from sin. Um, and so it paints this beautiful imagery of this. And the song's written in a minor key. If you know a little bit about music, you know there's major and minor keys. Mi major keys are triumphant or happy, um, joyful songs. Um, minor keys are typically weighty, heavy, um, and, and communicate a, a weight um, as, as you hear them. And so this song feels dark. Um, it, it has a weight to it because of the tension um, of putting yourself in the place of where God's people were, where they were yearning for the Messiah to come um, and waiting for him. So I want us to, to listen to this song. I want you guys to focus on the, the words for this and the imagery. So let's listen to that song.
Together you beneath my gym. 